Great. Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. I enjoyed worshiping with you. Great work with the band. Appreciate you all so much. Thank you. I am apparently in a long line of gateway faculty who come and preach at this church. As I was walking in, someone said, oh, we just had John Taylor's interim. I said, well, John Taylor's office, I was thinking to myself, is literally next to mine. And then they said, well, we also had Dr. Durst. Well, Dr. Durst's office is on the other side of mine. And then they named Adam Groza. Well, Adam Groza's office is just downstairs from mine. So I'm happy you finally made it to my office, my section of the building, to have me. But uh, I do enjoy uh, being with you. I enjoy the sincerity of your worship, the heartfelt passion. And what a beautiful meeting place. This is fantastic. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking together at the book of Hebrews. And it's Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll just look at verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4. And as you turn there, just a little bit about me so you can know my background. Uh, My wife is named April. We have a daughter who's six named Sophia. We live in Eastvale, California, which uh, 10 years ago was the cow fields next to Chino Hills. It's now been developed. And so Eastvale is just on the outskirts of Ontario where Gateway Seminary is located. Gateway Seminary is one of the Southern Baptist seminaries, and we provide theological education from really advanced program, which is kind of more of an undergraduate type program, all the way up to PhD and THM and DMIN. And so I came to Gateway three years ago. Gateway used to be Golden Gate Seminary, some of you will know, in the Bay Area. And it moved here to SoCal just before COVID and changed its name to Gateway. I was hired during that move. I'm originally from the South, and so occasionally a Southern accent will come out very strongly, and you'll hear that. Uh, I'm originally from Northwest Florida. My wife is from Georgia. We met in North Carolina. I pastored in Virginia. So we moved up the East Coast of the U.S., and now we're in the West Coast. But that's a little bit about us. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And let's pray together before we read God's Word. Father, we're here today for you. We're here not to be seen. We're here not for our own glory. We're here because we hunger and desire to know you above all. We want to love you with all that we are. We want to be conformed into the image of your son. We want to gather with your people so that we can build one another up. And so we turn the remainder of this service over to you. We pray for your spirit to move powerfully. We pray for your word to move effectively. And we just pray that when we leave here, we would leave here more in connection with who you are and who you want us to be. I pray for your blessings on this church as it meets every Sunday, that you would meet their needs, that you would guide them and encourage them, that you would build them up in the ministry that they're accomplishing in this region. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Now, as you can tell, this is the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. And sort of like an an academic work, the, the writer of Hebrews begins with a thesis statement. In these four verses, he tells us what the remainder of the book will be about. This is the preview, the introduction. If it were a movie, it would be sort of the trailer that sums up the entire film that you're about to see. And so here he's telling us that Jesus is going to be made in contrast to all of the works that God had done in the Old Testament before. Now, in no way is he going to denigrate or minimize the Old Testament. He probably himself is a Jewish writer who's come to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he's writing to a largely Jewish audience that has come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's not in any way belittling the Old Testament or God's works of old. But he was, he does want to show that Jesus is the fulfillment. That Jesus is superior. He is the climax. He is the apex. And so he's going to draw contrast in terms of how God communicates about himself and how God saves his people and even how God demonstrates his lordship. And so by looking at these four verses, just this morning, we get a synopsis of the entire book, a taste, a preview, an appetizer. And what I want us to do is just walk carefully through these four verses, and we will look at Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the king. Because those are the three key categories of how God worked through his people in the Old Testament. The prophet, the priest, and kings. Now, the writer of Hebrews starts by talking about Jesus as the superior prophet. And in verse 1, he asks us to recall back in our minds... All of the different ways that God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. He says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by these prophets. And you think about all the different ways that God had of communicating about himself. He could thunder on Mount Sinai with the clouds of smoke and the great shaking of the mountain. And then he could speak to Elijah in the still, small voice. He could use the dramatic parables that are found in Jeremiah's book where Jeremiah literally walked around with a yoke over his shoulders to show the captivity. Or he could speak through the psalmist and the beautiful wisdom literature that's found in Psalms or Proverbs or even Ecclesiastes. And so the writer says, think about all the dramatic communicative events that happen in the Old Testament. From the miracles, to the poetry, to the teachings, even the moments when Nathan stood before King David and said, you are the man. All of these great stories that so many of us learned as children, perhaps in Sunday school or in some sort of children's church context. So we keep those stories in mind. And then here comes the contrast. Look in verse 2. But in these days... That is the day since Christ's coming and beyond. But in these days, God has done something radically different. In these days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the contrast was all of the people in the Old Testament were mere human beings. From Nathan the prophet to Jeremiah to even the man of God, Moses, who is called God's friend. 
But in these days, there's something unique. There's something fresh. There's something distinct. Because here's not just a normal human being. Here is the son. The son who has come down to reveal to us in fullness who God is in his glory. That's why when Jesus was on earth, he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Here is this great, tremendous moment of revelation. Now notice the language that's applied to the son here. He wants us to be sure that the son, Jesus, was no mere normal human being. Look at the descriptors. Well, in verse 2, he's the heir of all things. It's through Christ, through the word, that the father created the world. He has all the glory of God in verse 3. The exact imprint of the divine nature, the God's nature. And even at this moment, he is upholding the universe by his word power. None of these descriptors could apply to a normal human being. They show the eternality of the son. The son was there before creation, helping creation come into being. They show the sovereign rule of the son. The son is over all things, upholding all things by his power. They even show the equality of the son with the father. The exact imprint of his nature. That means all that the father has in terms of deity, the son has that same deity. It's kind of a nerdy point, but if you'll bear with me. In Greek, the Greek word here is the word that the the ancient people would use for money. Specifically when money was coined at at the mint. And so a die would be pressed down on the metal to cut out an image on the metal to make it a coin. This word was used in that context whenever the die, the cutting tool, matched up perfectly with the image that was pressed onto the coin. If it was done appropriately, you could look at the die and look at the coin and said, this turned out well. The image is the same. That's the word that is used here. If you look to the Father, you see His fullness. You look to the Son, you also see that fullness. You look to the Son, you see the fullness of the Father. And so there's no question of Jesus being slightly below the Father, slightly less than God, almost God, a great man but not quite divine. No, here He is expressed as being fully divine. And it's this fully divine son, fully God, who came down to walk the dirty, dusty streets of the ancient first century world to preach and to teach and to heal. Fully God, retaining his deity, becoming human. And so what is God like? Well, in his fullness, you look to Christ. And we find in Christ a God who's compassionate and loving. A God who spent time with the outcast, the oppressed, those who were burdened with guilt and shame. A God who had compassion on the hungry and the weak and the vulnerable. A God who was always with the suffering and could quite be provocative to the legalistic religious leaders. When God comes to earth, when the Son comes to earth, this is who he shows himself to be. And so it's through Christ that we interpret all of the teachings of the Old Testament because he is that climax. 
And it is through Christ that we come to see who God is in terms of our our worship of him, how we preach and teach about him. Here's one way to think about it. For years, my family and I lived in Britain. We lived in Scotland, uh, in St. Andrews, and I was there doing my studies. And of course, in America, we're infatuated, many of us, with some of the early British preachers, especially the British preachers of the 18th century. And it seems in many circles today, especially people are infatuated with a a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who preached in London years ago. And so whenever we were there in Britain, I had to make sure I saw all of these old churches where these famous preachers preached. I went around and took pictures. Some people go for tourism to see the sights of London. I was going on tourism to see these old famous churches. And so I visited Spurgeon's church once, and I was looking through the archives to see the stories of his life, and I came across this quick anecdote. There was a man early in Spurgeon's ministry who was illiterate, but no one in the church knew that he could not read. He would come to the church meetings every Sunday faithfully, worshiping in sincerity, He would come and serve in the church in various capacities. But over time, as people had conversation with him, they came to see that he really had no knowledge of the Bible. He was confused about what the Bible said, what was even in the Bible. And so several people in the church thought, well, maybe this is a question of discipleship. Is there some way to help him? Is there some way to provide teaching? So they went to his house. And on his bookshelf, they saw... A series of Bibles. So then they were even more perplexed. Because this is not a question of a man not having access to a Bible. He has Bibles. They even saw him one time at church pouring over the Bible as it was being read. Having his finger on the pages going through the words. And it was only later that they discovered that even though he knew the Bible was important. Even though he would give attention to it in the public worship service. To him, it was foreign. To him, it was distant because he could not read the words on the page. And what I'm saying is, had God not come in Christ in this way, that's how you and I would have been. God's everywhere. God's omnipresent. He's not contained by space. God would have been present with us here. But we would have not known him. He would have had no access to him. But with Christ coming, the fullness of the Father, the fullness of the deity has been made manifest to humanity. By taking on our flesh, by becoming one of us, by modeling in human form what he is and who he is. And so now we have an interpretive key. Now we can understand. So when we look to Christ, we can say, behold our God. And it's open to us. And what was once foreign and inaccessible is now understandable. And so now even in a children's service, we can stand up and tell the simplest story about Jesus. But in a profound way, we're saying something more complex and something even more detailed than all that that came before. So Jesus is the superior prophet. Long ago, God spoke in various ways, but in these days, he spoke through his son. But he's also the superior priest. If you look in verse 3... After we have this long description of who the Son is, upholding the power of the universe by His Word, the radiance of glory to God the Father, 
it says this. He made purification for sins. Now in the Old Testament, the prophet, the prophet's job was to reveal to the people who God was. It was to speak to the people about God. It was God's representative to humanity. But in the Old Testament, the priest had the exact opposite job. The priest was to represent the people back to God. And the priest was to pray for the people. The priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But there's one problem. Because in the book of Hebrews, as you'll know, it explicitly says later that the sacrifices made in the Old Testament could never fully cleanse the hearts of the worshipers. So there's something about the Old Testament system that was good, was what God prescribed, but it was also designed to be incomplete, pointing us to Christ. And the book of Hebrews explains why this was incomplete. The book of Hebrews says, well, when the priest had to offer a sacrifice for sins, the priest had to offer a sacrifice not just for the people, but for themselves, because they too were imperfect. And the priest had to offer these sacrifices again and again and again and again. Because they were never fully effectual. There was a continual offering. But when Jesus came to the cross, he came once. He offered the sacrifice one time. And he himself said, it is finished. And when Christ came to the cross, he offered no sacrifice of sin for himself. Because he himself was sinless. So here he is, a perfect priest, offering an effectual sacrifice. And the sacrifice that he offered was not the blood of an animal. It was his own body, the blood of the spotless lamb. He offered himself. And so now, there is full and complete purification for sin. Now the hearts have been fully cleansed from those who want to worship God. And so what it means is the God who reveals himself to us in Christ also also saves us through Christ. And so for those of us in Christ today, there is no condemnation before God for us. The purification has been made complete. As he said, it is finished. And we stand before God as free people. That means there is nothing that I can do To make God love me more. Or to make myself better in God's standing. And there's nothing I can do to make God not love me anymore. And so, if you're like me, there's some days that you feel like I'm finally getting the handle on this Christian thing. I'm finally getting my sanctification house in order. Maybe you have a good day at work and you feel like you are nice and patient to your colleagues. And you come home and you have great time with your family. Miraculously, the kids behave. (laughs) Or miraculously, you come home and schoolwork goes well. And you just have a great quiet time that night or that morning and you feel, yes, this is it. And then the next day comes. 
And something incredibly frustrating happens at school or at work. And you get home and the kids are just a mess and there's chaos. And you lose your temper or you're frustrated or you get jealous at someone or you find yourself gossiping about something. You're in a bad mood and you try to have quiet time and you pray and pray. But it seems as though your prayers launch no higher than the ceiling. And you go to bed that night and you say, well, Lord, I tried. I tried. The question is this. On what day, on which day did God love you more? And the answer was the same on both days. Because of Christ, because of his work, his purifying work, we're clean before God. And on either day, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This isn't a license for us to take sin not seriously. It's not a license to just abandon ourselves to licentiousness and just ignore God's grace. But it is an expression of the freedom that comes in the gospel. And the freedom that comes in the gospel should drive us to even more holiness. Not out of a sense of fear, but out of a sense of gratitude and joyfulness for what God has done. And so it might be that you come to church today and you feel as far away from God as you can possibly be. And you think that if everyone in this room knew what you were really like, when you were not standing up singing or not being friendly over coffee, well, then they would have nothing to do with you. Or it might be that you feel if anyone really knew your past, they would never let you enjoy church leadership or anything like that. And the message of the gospel is because of the purification brought by Christ, you are free and I am free. And even though we are sinners, we can come to this place. We can have access to the presence of God. And as Hebrews says later, we can approach his throne of grace with boldness. And so we can raise our hands in worship. We can have joy and forgiveness in the gospel. And out of that gratitude, be driven towards deeper holiness, towards deeper affection for Christ. And so the key is you and I have a priest. And when we feel condemned or we feel perhaps when the devil is bringing to our mind all of our sins and all of our faults and the condemnation heaps high on our backs, we just stop and think, Christ is my priest who made purification. He revealed God to me and then he brought me back to God. That's the joy of the Christian message. I told you I come from the South and sometimes the difficulty can be a sense of legalism, right? Where we can get in our minds, well, if I do X, Y, Z, God loves me more. Or I have to do X, Y, Z to keep God in love with me. And with Christ as the priest, all of those concepts go out of the window. And instead, we have confidence in the security before God that we have through Christ. And we press forward in reckless abandonment for his glory. So Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. But really quickly... So we finish, Jesus is the king. We've seen the prophets in the Old Testament. We've seen the priest in the Old Testament. But as you know, there are kings in the Old Testament. Now, these kings were all imperfect, just as the priests and prophets were. David is sort of the typical king that we all think about when we think of Old Testament kings. The man after God's own heart. The composer of so many of the Psalms. 
But as we know, David could also be a terribly guilty person, involving himself in adultery and even conspiring to have Uriah murdered. So if he's the climax of all the Old Testament kings or the apex of kingship in the Old Testament, there are problems. But even in the Old Testament, for example, in in Samuel, there's this promise that there would be a forever king on a forever throne before God. It would be someone out of David's lineage, out of David's family tree. And so Christ falls in that line. He is of the house and lineage of David. And so what happens is, in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, we learn he made purification for sin. But notice the implication. The implication is he doesn't stay dead. He made purification for sin, but then he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So built into this is an understanding that there's a resurrection and an ascension where the one who dies making purification is raised up and he's raised up into glory. In the Bible, to seat at the right hand, to be seated there is to sit in the place of the most um, significant honor. To be seated at the right hand is to enjoy the privileged position. And this is metaphorical language that's just telling us now that Christ died and rose again, he's being revealed and disclosed to us as the one he's always been, the one in tremendous honor and glory over all creation, ruling and reigning over all things. And so he is the eternal king on the eternal throne in this eternal glory, sovereignly predisposing all things to their proper ends. Now, if you're like me and you watch the news, sometimes it doesn't feel like Christ is on a forever kingship throne directing all things because things can at times feel very much out of control. Things can seem purposeless. Things can seem even gratuitous and senseless. And that's just on a global cosmic scale we see in the news. In our own lives, we can feel personally the same way. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that we're immune to human suffering, tragedy. And every single one of us, if we were honest this morning, could tell stories about heartache that we've experienced, difficulty that we've walked through, and probably even dark nights if we're honest when we said, God, why? I loved you. I serve you. Why did you let this happen to me or my family or this close relationship I have? Why? And so at a cosmic level and a personal level, things can feel out of control. But the message here is that the one who died for us in love and the one who came to reveal God to us in love is indeed the one who is running and controlling this world as king. And so even though things can be dark and seem painful, he is still going to bring everything to its proper end. And there is a point coming in which every tear will be dried. Revelation. Every question, God, why, will find some sort of emotional, if nothing else, satisfaction. And every time God's people have cried out, how long, O Lord? Well, eventually they'll see God provide an answer. 
And so through the mysteries of providence, through light and dark, through good times and bad, we know that behind the scenes, Christ is running and directing this world. And so we are people who even in hardship can have great hope. I told you earlier we lived in Britain. What was interesting about being overseas for four years and then coming back to America was just how much America had changed while we were gone. It was interesting. You come back and you think, I'm at home here. This is where I'm from. But I'm no longer at home here. Everyone changed and I stayed the same. And there was just this sense of angst and despair at times. People worried about the economy, worried about politics, worried about this, worried about that. There was a crisis constantly. Well, I had been in hibernation. I had just been working on a PhD overseas. My life was walk to an office, write a paper, and come back every day. You come back into this world of anxiety. And I remember once just thinking, well, whatever we do as a family... We're not going to be like this in God's grace. We're going to have hope. We're not going to give in to anxiety. We're not going to give in to combativeness. We're going to have joy. Because whatever happens, even in COVID, Christ is Lord. And it's an opportunity for Christian witness. As people can see, how do you have this hope within you while the world falls apart around you? And you can say... Christ is prophet, he told me God loved me. Christ is priest, he died for me so I could be brought back to God. And right now, at this moment, we can't always see it, but he is king. He's ruling my life, he's ruling this universe, all will be well. And so in these days, we can have gentleness, hope, steadfast endurance, because this is the God we serve. He's not a distant God. He's a very personal near God. He's the cosmic creator of the universe, immutable, impassable, all the theology words apply to him. But at the same time, he's condescended to be close, taking on flesh, doing these things. And that's the reason we sing. That's the reason we have joy. That's the reason we gather this good news. As we close out, I want to pray for you and pray for your church. And also pray if you're here today and you've not heard of Christ before, if you're a guest, I know that there are people in this church who would be happy to speak and explain things to you in more detail. Please ask questions. Please talk to your friends. Christ is the priest who loves you, who came to be with you, who came to start relationship with you. And come and pursue that uh, today. So let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for... Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. We thank you that in a world that's lacking in good news, that there is good news. We thank you in a world that can sometimes make us feel so guilty that you are the one who brings peace and purification and reconciliation. And we thank you in a world of darkness and spiritual confusion that you are the light, you are the prophet who tells us who God is. I pray for this church family that you would bless them. I pray for the gospel here to be preached clearly as they want it to be every Sunday. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.